Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kaiju Carnage. I am your host, Cal the Kaiju Guy. As always, I would like to encourage you to go and give the podcast a rating and or review on whatever podcasting platform it is that you listen to the show on, be it Apple Podcasts or Podbay or whatever it is. Go give the show a rating and or review if you don't mind. Now, before I jump into the episode, I have... Two announcements to make. Uh, the first one is, guys, I finally, I finally did it. I finally went went through with it. I've uh, created the YouTube channel and I uploaded my first episode onto the YouTube. Now, mind you, this episode that I did is merely an introduction episode, and. There's not a whole lot to it. It's very, very similar to the intro episode that I did here on this podcast, but it's much shorter. All in all, I can't remember if it was six minutes or nine minutes long, but basically it was just me getting on there, talking about how, you know, explaining what the show is going to be and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I've already got one subscriber, so that was that was pretty cool because all I did was post the link on a... Uh, my Instagram and my Facebook, and I already got one subscriber. So, and the video doesn't have a whole lot of views, but because I haven't really advertised for it, so this is the official advertise for the uh, the YouTube channel that I'm going to be doing. And you guys can go over there and listen to that, and you'll get an idea as to what is going to be on the YouTube. And yeah, go give it a subs you know, go subscribe to it, hit that little notification bar so whenever I post things on the YouTube, you get notified and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and try and give the YouTube channel just as much love and attention as you guys have given my regular podcast. So uh please go do that for me. And the other thing that I have done is, I believe I had already talked about this, but I didn't do anything with it yet, but uh, over the last two days, I've begun to actually put some attention into it, and I've made a TikTok for the podcast, and it's called, my, my name on there is Cal the Kaiju Guy, and the profile picture is the same as it is on every social media thing that I have pretty much. So all I'm really going to do on the TikTok is there, the videos are anywhere between 15 to 30 seconds long. And I'm just going to be giving Kaiju fun facts and all of that. I'm not going to like jump too, too heavy or too, too deep into it. So if you want to have like daily Kaiju fun facts and all that kind of stuff, go give me a, a, a follow on TikTok and as I do, I plan on doing a fun fact, at least one fun fact a day. And, you know, if that seems like something you want to check out, by all means, go check it out. So it's called uh, Cal the Kaiju Guy. And the YouTube is just simply called Kaiju Carnage. And again, has the same profile picture as virtually everything else on my social media. And... Uh, while we're talking about social media, go on ahead and go give my Facebook page a like and a follow if you don't mind. I'm having a, a difficult time trying to build the uh, the Facebook page back up to uh, the following that I once had. You know, I was knocking on 1,200 followers uh, before it got deleted by Facebook. And now I've got, I think I just got to 130. 
and it's it's a different ball game. You know, I'm used to whenever I post something or something like that, getting a pretty good amount of reactions, a decent amount of comments and all that kind of stuff. And now I can post something and I'm lucky to get one reaction out of it because I've just, I lost so many of my original followers and all of that kind of stuff. So if you could go and give the new Facebook page a like and or follow, I'd very much appreciate it. And also my personal Instagram, which is called Cal Woodman, that is K-A-L, as in Superman, Cal Woodman Kaiju Carnage. And I pretty much just post, uh, you know, kaiju pictures and things like that on there. So go give that a uh, follow as well, if you don't mind. And I don't put a lot of focus on my Reddit. I need to put more focus on my Reddit, in all honesty. But yes, Kaiju Carnage does have a Reddit to go look for that, just type in kaiju underscore carnage. If you can't find it, then you probably have to put the R slash then kaiju underscore carnage. So, with all of that said, welcome to episode number one of season two of Kaiju Carnage. Now, I believe I talked about this in the previous episode, but the reason why I've decided to separate the show's into two different seasons. I'm not saying there's going to be multiple seasons, uh, like other seasons after this one, but I wanted to separate what I had done so far and what I'm currently doing into two separate seasons because here moving forward, I'm going to start covering a whole lot of more content. I'm going to uh, jump into the Ultraman franchise. I'm going to start talking about some more big mech franchises such as the Mobile Suit Gundam franchise, uh, specifically the Universal Century timeline, but I will jump into like Gundam Wing and G Gundam and all of that kind of stuff as well with that. And, you know, I'm going to start talking more about anime shows like Singular Point. I'm going to talk about uh, other forms of media that Kaiju have, such as graphic novels or novels and things like that. Like there are two crossover novels that King Kong had. One was called uh, King Kong versus Tarzan. One was Doc Savage on Skull Island. I'll cover both of those in the future. Uh, there was a comic book, another crossover with King Kong that was uh, called Kong on the Planet of the Apes, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's a crossover between King Kong and Planet of the Apes. And so that's why I separated things into two different seasons, because Season 1 was primarily me talking about movies and things like that, whereas Season 2 I'm definitely going to be branching out more and talking about all forms of media that kaiju were found in. And if you were in this only to listen to the movies, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. That, that's all I can say. But if I'm being perfectly honest with you, if I only stuck to the movies like and talked about nothing else, just the movies... Eventually, I would run out of content to talk about. I mean, I've pretty much already covered every Godzilla Showa-era film except for one. I've covered most of the King Kong films. Like, I mean, I've still got the MonsterVerse films that I can do. I've still got most of the Heisei uh, Godzilla-era films. All of the Millennium Godzilla films. And a few standalones here and there, like the other two uh, sequels to... The Rebirth of Mothra, and just a whole bunch of off-the-wall kaiju films that hardly nobody's ever heard of before, and all of that kind of stuff. But, I mean, 
you know, you sticking with just the movies, you give this podcast another two years or something like that, and there's a pretty good chance I would run out of content. So that's why I'm wanting to branch out and talk about more things other than just the movies. So this is episode one of season two, and I thought it would be fitting that since my very first official episode that I ever did way back a year ago and all of that was on the 1933 King Kong film, that episode one of season two, which is right here at, on the verge of the one year anniversary of me posting my very first official episode at the time of this recording, today is Saturday, tomorrow on Sunday would be the one year anniversary of the podcast. And I'm thinking about possibly doing something special for that. I might go live on my Instagram or something like that. So if you haven't followed me on Instagram, go give me a follow and you can, you know, tune in for that if you, uh, if you'd like to, but <clears throat> you know, uh, like I said, my very first official episode was on the 1933 King Kong. So I think it's only fitting that episode one of season two right here on the one year anniversary should be what I consider to be the greatest remake of all time, and that would be Peter Jackson's King Kong that came out in 2005. I I adore this movie. I'm going to open up by saying that right now. I love this movie. I can't tell you how many times I've seen it. Um, I let my fiancé watch it for the first time probably about a month ago. She enjoyed it for the most part, but she had a few issues with it, and I share some of those issues with her, and I'm going to discuss that later on in the episode. So, I love this movie, but I do have some problems with this movie, and I'm going to get into all that later on. I can remember whenever this movie was being advertised and seeing the ads for it and all that kind of stuff on TV, and I was so pumped. I was so excited. I could not wait to watch the film. Uh, unfortunately, around the time that it was coming out, I I was, whew, how old was I? I was like 17, I believe, and I did not have a vehicle of my own, nor were my parents. You know, I've talked about uh, my upbringing, about being in the strict household and all that kind of stuff. So my parents weren't especially thrilled about me taking a vehicle out and kind of going here and there by myself and all that kind of stuff. So I was still, at the time of this movie coming out, I was very much still needing to have a ride to go places and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had a little part-time job, but... It just, I don't, it just, I wanted to go see the movie in theaters, but it's like every single time a weekend would come around, like, hey, can I get a ride up to the theater? Y'all could drop me off or whatever, you know, finding out that the movie's like three hours long. Um, my parents were not interested in watching the movie. They were not interested in just dropping me off at the theater and basically being like, okay, we'll see you in three hours. Um, I didn't have a cell phone at the time, so they wouldn't be able to call me or anything like that. Like, it was just, you know, circumstances behind it and all of that kind of stuff. I didn't get to go see it in theaters, and that's always been a big regret of mine. But I do remember that, like, the day it came out on home 
home video that I was just like someone like I've got to get to town. I've got to get to a Walmart. I've got to buy King Kong. And so I got it. I watched it. I loved it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great movie. It's a fantastic film. Um, I can go easily back and forth between watching the extended edition and just a theatrical edition. While the extended edition is cool, having a whole lot of these uh, extended scenes and bonus scenes, scenes that were featured in the original novel that were not featured in uh, the original film and all that kind of stuff. While that stuff is cool, it can kind of... I don't know. I, I don't really know how to explain it. It's just, it can be a little bit of an overload, I guess. You know, there's only so much you can watch the same group of people go through disaster after disaster after disaster before you sit there and just be like, every one of these people would be dead by now. Like, this doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, I can definitely swap evenly back and forth between the extended edition and the theatrical edition. I love them both uh, in their own special little ways. And, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so, with all of that said, let's jump straight into the movie. Now, where all of this began with this particular film coming, like, starting to get made and all of that, was because Universal was interested in Peter Jackson specifically and they originally wanted him but they did not want him to mess with king kong they wanted him for a whole different movie peter jackson made a film in 1995 called the frighteners and universal some universal executives they watched it they enjoyed it they were really really impressed with the raw footage that he shot for the movie and so they reached out to him and said that they were planning on doing a remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and they wanted him to direct. And oddly enough, he declined it, but it's a good thing that he declined it because he was able to move on to King Kong. But then at the same time, I'm like... Man, I would love to have seen a Peter Jackson remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon because I'm I'm a massive Universal Monsters fan. I love The Creature from the Black Lagoon and I really wish that that property specifically in the Universal Monsters would get more love and attention. So he ends up turning it down. And so Universal, they just they wanted him for a movie so badly, they were just basically like, well, what can we offer him? What can we get him to to want to direct and everything? And then they found out that Peter Jackson is a massive King Kong fan. And whenever I say massive King Kong fan, <laughs> the man he, he's a man after my own heart. So Peter Jackson first saw the film whenever he was nine years old. <clears throat> so... Just like everybody, whenever you're a little kid and you first see King Kong, he cried his eyes out whenever King Kong slips from the top of the Empire State Building and falls to his death. And, you know, it upset him. It made him very, very sad as it, you know, like I said, it makes everybody 
very, very sad. Like, King Kong is one of the most iconic films that's out there. He's become one of the most iconic characters that's out there. And, you know, the film, his story is a tragedy. That's the whole point of it. Whenever Marion C. Cooper first came up with the concept of King Kong, he came up with the ending first. He uh, he wanted Kong to die. Even before he came up with the name Kong, he was basically like, this is going to end with Kong dying. And so Peter Jackson saw the original film when he was nine. He was very upset that uh, Kong died. So fast forward just a little bit. Whenever he is 12 years old, he actually attempted to remake the film just, you know, in like a little home video. He used his parents' camera to try and film the scenes, and he made his own little King Kong to use for the stop motion and all of that. He used uh, wires as the base and then rubber over the wires, and then i um, pr pretty sure his uh, mother wasn't very thrilled with this, but he actually used his mother's fur coat for the fur of King Kong, and... He attempted to do a just a little home video remake of the film, but he abandoned it. You know, like how, how many times people do we come up with some little home project that we want to do and we're like, oh, well, this would be fun. And then we get started on it and then we never complete it. And so that's pretty much what happened with Peter Jackson in this regard. And it wasn't long after that that he pretty much. He just kept, he would rewatch the film and all of that, and he pretty much just came to the conclusion of, you know what, this is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, he basically had the film memorized. He watched it anytime it would come on TV. Um, he went as far as to just starting to buy books that were out there on the making of King Kong, uh, reading biographies of Marion C. Cooper and things like that. Like, he just went crazy with, uh, you know, he became obsessed with King Kong and wanted to get as much information on the film and the making of the film as he possibly could. And he directly cites and credits the 1933 King Kong with his reason for getting into the film industry. So if it wasn't for the 1933 King Kong, we for sure would not have this remake that came out in 2005, we would not have the Lord of the Rings trilogy that he directed and just made a crazy amount of money and is super, super popular. Like, the original King Kong film is 100% responsible for that. And uh, so he gets into the film industry and he even paid tribute to the original film in a 1992 film that he did called Brain Dead which deals with uh, zombies and things like that. And the zombie, the origin for the zombie plague in that movie is at a place called Skull Island. So uh, that was a nice little nod that he did and everything. So anywho, so Universal finds out that he's a massive fan of King Kong. And so they wanted him to direct one of their films so bad that they were just basically like, well, you're, a, you're already a massive fan of King Kong. Why don't you just do that? So Jackson thought about it, and believe it or not, he actually turned it down. And the reason he turned it down was because he felt he would not be able to do it justice. 
because he loved the original so much he did not want to be responsible for doing a remake of it or another version of it and then it just completely get wrecked by critics, by fans and everything. And so he just felt that he was not going to be able to do the film justice. And so he turned it down. And almost immediately after turning it down, he got to thinking. And he said, well, since I turned it down and Universal is wanting to do it, they're going to offer it to somebody else. Whoever else that they offer it to may not be as big of a fan of it as I am, and they might completely wreck it. So he contacted Universal back uh, very, very quickly and was like, you know what? I changed my mind. I want to I wanna do it. I want to uh, direct King Kong. And so uh, everything was set in motion for him to direct the Universal remake of King Kong. But now there were some other things that was going on at the time. All of this is taking place in 1996. Now there's Harvey Weinstein and Miramax. They were trying to purchase the film rights to The Lord of the Rings, and they wanted Jackson to direct those. Also, Fox was in the mix because they were planning their remake of The Planet of the Apes, and they were also interested in Peter Jackson. So you've got Fox, Miramax, and Universal all wanting Peter Jackson to helm one of their projects. And Peter Jackson just flat out declined the Planet of the Apes film, which, you know, I, I, I kind of wish that he would have said yes, because it certainly would have been better than the garbage that we ended up getting in the Planet of the Apes remake, which I don't think I've ever mentioned it on my podcast, but I am a big Planet of the Apes film uh, uh, fan. I, I've i seen all of the original films. I love the original film with Charlton Heston. I'm a massive Charlton Heston fan. Um, obviously, I've seen the 2001 version that I'm talking about. And I have seen, religiously, the new trilogy that came out here most recently. The, uh, you know, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and then War for the Planet of the Apes. So... I, I wish Peter Jackson would have accepted that one because I would have been able to actually have something nice to say about the 2001 version that we ended up getting, but, you know, it is what it is. So he flat out turns down the Planet of the Apes film. And it was taking Weinstein and Miramax longer to get the Lord of the Rings film, uh, the rights to the Lord of the Rings films than he expected. And so he was wanting to do the Lord of the Rings because he's also a massive Lord of the Rings fan, but he also wanted to do King Kong. So he was trying to see how the Lord of the Rings situation was going to play out. And whenever it was taking much longer than expected, he pretty much reached out to Universal and was like, um, it's taking them so long to even secure the rights. I'm going to go ahead and say yes to King Kong. We can start working on that. And by the time I'm done with that, maybe everything will be set up for uh, the Lord of the Rings. And then I'll jump into the Lord of the Rings. Harvey Weinstein was furious that Peter Jackson pretty much put him on hold. I mean, you know, I don't have to get into all of the... Uh, 
stuff that went on in the news and all of that concerning Harvey Weinstein and how much of a garbage person he is. But, yeah, like, he was very accustomed to getting what he wanted, to not being put on hold, to not being told no. Like, he was, you know, he was a not nice word, let's put it that way. And so he was furious that Peter Jackson accepted the King Kong deal and pretty much put put uh, the Lord of the Rings deal on the back burner. And so he contacts Peter Jackson. He's given him the what for and all that kind of stuff. And so Peter Jackson pretty much makes a deal with everybody to where uh, Miramax was going to help like produce the Lord of the Rings films and all of that. But since Peter Jackson had already said yes to Kong, so that they didn't feel left out, that the Kong movie would be a joint production between Universal and Miramax, and that the production company uh, that Jackson had, called Wingnut Films, would also handle a pretty good chunk of the production. Universal would distribute the film in the United States, and Miramax would distribute the film in foreign territories and all of that kind of stuff. He was also able to finagle in the deal that he would have final cut privilege. And for those of you that are not familiar with what final cut privilege means is that he had final say so on what happened in the movie. Like a lot of times it's just how the film industry works uh, a director will be hired for a movie, he'll shoot the movie, he'll go through all kinds of stuff to do this and do that, and then all of a sudden a studio executive watches the movie, he doesn't too much care for it, he orders reshoots, he says, I want this to be funnier, I want this scene and that scene taken out and all that kind of stuff. Peter Jackson made sure that was not going to happen with his version of King Kong. So he had final cut privilege to where it didn't matter who didn't like it. And they were like, no, we don't care for this. We don't think that's going to work out. He could basically say, oh, well, it's in the contract. I've got final say-so on what happens with this film. So he had that. And he also got gross uh, profits, a percentage of the gross profits for his box office run. He had, uh, And he had artistic control of the film. So Peter Jackson pretty much negotiated his way into having complete and total control over the King Kong film. And that's how diehard of a fan he was for King Kong. That he was basically like, if I do this, it's going to be 100% mine. Weinstein is not going to interfere. Miramax is not going to interfere. Universal is not going to interfere. No one is going to interfere with how he wanted to make his movie. And... You know, he was able to secure all of that. Now, like I said, all of this is taking place in 1996 or 1995, around in that area, the mid to late 90s. As you guys know, the film uh, didn't come out for like another eight years or something like that. So obviously you can you get the idea that something is going to happen. But now I'll get into that here momentarily. Um, guys, we almost got a, a doozy of a movie and 
you know, I know I just talked about how diehard of a fan Peter Jackson was, and he was fair, scared that somebody else was going to mess it up and not do it justice and everything. But let me tell you, that clown almost messed it up. He almost did not do it justice. Um, I've got just a few little plot points that I'm going to mention here that was in his original script for the 1996 film. First of all, Anne was going to be the daughter of a very famous English archaeologist, and they were going to run into Carl's expedition crew, the film crew and everything, while they were exploring in Sumatra. They were going to discover a King Kong statue that would have the Skull Island map that would lead them to Skull Island. The natives of the film were not going to be just simply natives on an island. They were part of a religious cult. Uh, Jack, who in Peter Jackson's final version of the film ended up being a playwright, and in the original, you know, he was part of the expedition on the ship, like first mate and all that kind of stuff. He was going to be a World War I pilot in uh, the 96 script. There was going to be a prologue showing Jack's friend get killed in action, and it was basically going to be responsible for having Jack be this moody, broody, woe is me, the world is miserable, and all that kind of stuff in the film. That's how he was going to be. Uh, the cameraman by the name of Herb that's in the final movie, the one that always followed Carl and his little assistant around with the camera and all that kind of stuff. He is the only supporting character that was in the 1996 film that actually made it into the 2005 version of the movie. So, oh, Herb the cameraman was still around. And with the V-Rex fight that uh, Kong was going to have against the three man-eaters that was in the film... Uh, Anne was actually going to be in a little bit more danger than what she was in the 2005 version. She was actually going to get put into the mouth of one of the V-Rexes and she was going to get wedged in its teeth and whenever Kong got her out, she was going to be cut off uh, by one of its teeth. She was going to develop a fever that would almost kill her, but she would end up, you know getting, you know, getting over it and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's that's what we almost got, people. Uh, you know, an archaeologist ex expedition teaming up with a film crew expedition because they found a map to Skull Island and going to Skull Island and dealing with natives on the island that were part of a religious cult. So... I cannot express in words how happy I am that this particular version of the film did not happen. But with that said, I would very much have liked to have seen more of the story to find out. Because I'll give anything a shot. I'll try anything once. And I would like to know how the full story went. Like if we could have gotten this as like a novel or something other like that. A graphic novel, limited series, comic book, something I would have been okay with that, you know, because we did end up getting the cool 2005 version that we got. I would like to see how this one would have, uh, this version would have turned out because I'm a diehard King Kong fan and I'm always about seeing more King Kong stories and all of that kind of stuff. 
So, that's the version of the film that we almost got. Filming was supposed to begin in 1997, and the film was going to be released in 1998. For some of the casting decisions that he was going to make for this movie, um, you know, like I said, all of this is going down in 1996, 1997. What other big movie was going on around that time, people? Titanic. So Peter Jackson actually reached out to Kate Winslet, who played Rose in Titanic, and she had actually worked with Peter Jackson in a previous film before. He reached out to her to see if she was interested in playing Anne in his King Kong film. And for the roles of Jack and Carl, he was really aiming on doing on getting George Clooney and Robert De Niro. So, that that's... Uh, nope. <laughs> that's all I've got to say on that. Just nope, 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 nope. I don't think that would have uh, that would have worked out too well. I love George Clooney. I love Robert De Niro. They are not Jack and Carl, as far as I'm concerned. They're just not. And so I'm glad that that particular thing did not end up happening. So, that was going to be the plan for Universal's big King Kong remake. Then enter... A few problems. First problem, like I said a little while ago, all this is going down in 1996. Filming would begin in 97. Film would be released in 1998. 1998. It would be released in 1998. What other big film was released in 1998, people? Godzilla, 1998. The TriStar version of Godzilla. Universal was afraid of trying to put King Kong up against a Godzilla film because everyone expected that Godzilla film to just do so well. And it didn't, even though I love that movie. I completely understand and get anyone's issues that they have with that movie. Like, I get it. I do. So, they didn't want King Kong to go up against Godzilla in 1998. Also, there was a remake of Mighty Joe Young. That was happening in 1998, so they didn't want a King Kong film to go up against another very, like, gorilla-centered uh, remake film that was, you know, the original film was also done by Marion C. Cooper, and pretty much all the people that did the 1933 Kong did the original Mighty Joe Young. And so there was a lot of connection there, and they were afraid to compete with Mighty Joe Young. And not long after Mighty Joe Young in 2001, Planet of the Apes was going to come out. So you were going to have a big Godzilla movie and two very ape-slash-gorilla-centered movies that was coming out. And they were afraid that their film on King Kong was going to get lost in the mix. So they halted everything. I'm not talking about they just said, hey, we're going to put this on hold. They ended it. They were done. They were through. They were finished. And they said, no, we're not, we're not doing it. They already had hired a CGI crew that was working on creating a New York 1933 version, like on the computer for some of the scenes and all of that kind of stuff. They had been working on that for six months. And then Universal pulled the plug on everything. Said, no. We're done. So, everything got shelved. Uh, by then, the Lord of the Rings rights had been purchased. 
And they reached out to Peter Jackson and said, do you still want to do Lord of the Rings? And he said, yes, I do. So he shifted to the Lord of the Rings. And yeah, that's pretty much what happened there. So Lord of the Rings comes out. And I don't need to hype up that trilogy. I don't need to tell people how great that trilogy is. It's an amazing trilogy of films. And because they were doing so well... Well, now all of a sudden Universal starts seeing dollar signs because who directed the Lord of the Rings? Peter Jackson. So they're like, well, if he could do that with the Lord of the Rings, what could he really do with King Kong? So once again, they reached out to him in 2003. Uh, he was still in the process of finishing up things with uh, The Return of the King, which, by the way, The Return of the King... Uh, would go on to tie the record for the most Academy Awards ever won by a film that is a three-way tie shared with uh, Return of the King, Titanic, and the Charlton Heston film, Ben-Hur. So, yeah, they were very impressed with how The Lord of the Rings went. They saw the amount of money that it made. They saw how well... Peter Jackson adapted, like, original source material to screen. So things started turning again, and they reached out to him in 2003 and offered a revival of the uh, King Kong film. But, like I said, he was still in the middle of finishing up things with The Return of the King. And so he was very excited. He was pumped. He said, absolutely, I'll do it, but, you know, you guys got to let me get done with... Uh, the Return of the King first. So after he was done with The Return of the King, uh, he's like, okay, let's get back started on King Kong. He actually brought in his co-writers that he had for The Lord of the Rings and said, let's look at the uh, script that we had come up with in, uh, in 1996 and let's look all of that over. But before he brought, he brought in the script writers and all that, he made another deal with Universal. They pitched to him that the film was going to have a $150 million budget. Well, Peter Jackson wanted to increase that budget to $175. He also uh, negotiated that he would be paid $20 million up front for writing, producing, and directing the film. And he also wanted 20% of the box office run that it was going to get. Um, some people might sit there and be like, man, that's, that sure is greedy. Like he's, you know, like he makes the Lord of the Rings and now all of a sudden he's going in there and demanding this and demanding that. It wasn't just for him because everything that he got, he shared with his two co-writers. So yeah, he got paid 20 million up front. He was going to get 20% of the box office. His two co-writers got everything, like they shared it. It was an even, uh, three-way split between the three of them. So that, I thought that was pretty cool that he did that. Now, Universal said yes to all of this. But there was just one thing. Universal Universal is a massively big studio. And they're like, you're not just going to come in here and start bossing us around and tell us we're going to do this and we're going to do that. So they looked at the budget, said we already increased your budget from 150 million to 175 million. So 
we saw how expensive the films for The Lord of the Rings was. We saw how you kept shooting additional scenes and extending the run times and all of that. So they were basically like, if you go over budget for this King Kong film, you're going to cover the additional budget costs out of your own pocket. And so uh, Jackson agreed and said, okay. So he brought in his two uh, co-writers for Lord of the Rings, and he actually brought in most of the crew that he worked with on the Lord of the Rings trilogy to come help him with King Kong. Whenever they start looking at the 1996 script, Peter Jackson finally came to his senses and actually said he was never satisfied with the 1996 script. He didn't like the way it turned out. He didn't like a lot of the changes that he made. And so he was like, I don't want to go with this. Instead of doing like, you know, coming up with original concepts and trying to tweak the story and all that kind of stuff, he decided this is going to be just a straight up remake of the 1933 film, which was the best decision that he could have ever made. And he was going to film certain scenes that was supposed to appear in the original film, but wasn't because of either budget concerns or, quite frankly, because of the times, they wasn't able to actually film those type of scenes back then. And he was also going to uh, include scenes that were found in the uh, 1932 novelization that was not in the film. Some of the things that he was going to put in there was like the spider pit in the book and in the original film. Whenever Kong knocks all of the people off of the log, there were supposed to be spiders and everything that would come out of the canyon, grab the dead bodies. Some of the people would still be alive, drag them off and eat them and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that was nowhere in the original film. It's very brief in the novelization, and everyone sees that in the movie, we actually pretty much get like a full-blown fight scene down in the spider pit. Some of the other scenes that was going to be featured in his version of the film was the... Uh, there was going to be a Triceratops featured in his film, but it's not like exactly how it went in the original book. In the original book, there are some Triceratops that attack Kong. Kong ends up killing one. They end up running away, and they kind of run into the expedition, and then they attack the expedition. Whereas in Peter Jackson's version of the film, it is a simple, just lone uh, Triceratops that happens to come across the expedition, and a fight breaks out. And also the lagoon scene was going to be placed in Peter Jackson's film. And also the character of Lumpy. He's the cook that was featured in the 1932 novel, but was not in the original film. And so he was going to be in this film, which he was also played by Andy Serkis, who also played the uh, motion capture for King Kong for the film. So Andy Serkis actually has two roles that he plays in this movie. So filming was going, uh, it began in 2004. Uh, they went to New Zealand. The entire Lord of the Rings trilogy was shot in New Zealand, so they just shot this film in New Zealand. Now, the name of the ship was changed in the original film as well as the uh, 
in the novelization, the name of the ship is the Wanderer. And it was changed in this one to the Venture. And for the Venture scenes, whenever they're on the ship and all of that kind of stuff, there was a full deck that was made so that they could shoot those scenes. And then there was a green screen behind them for, you know, all of the elements and the ocean and all of that kind of stuff. The New York sets were shot on a back lot. And whenever I say the New York sets, I'm talking about, you know, in the beginning, whenever they're still in New York, as well as uh, during the climax, whenever Kong is trying to escape from the military and all of that kind of stuff. It was just shot on a back lot of a studio in New Zealand. The Broadway Theater, where Kong makes his big escape from and all of that, was shot in an actual opera house. And because of all this was going on, Peter Jackson, being the kind of man that he is, uh, wanting to shoot all of these extra scenes and constantly coming up with new stuff to do and all of that, well, guess what? The budget ended up increasing. It went from $175 million to $270 million. He had added an additional 30 minutes of runtime, just the theatrical version, bringing the theatrical version of the film to uh, just over three hours. By this film, its budget jumping up to $207 million, very briefly, it broke a record and became the most expensive film ever made. Obviously, it's not anymore. There's been a number of films that have uh, broken that $207 million record, but yeah, for, for a very short time, uh, 2005 King Kong was considered to be the most expensive film ever made. And, you know, Jackson, it was in the contract. Jackson had to pay $32 million to uh out of his own pocket to cover um to cover the uh extra uh budget costs that he ended up doing not only did was universal getting nervous about all of this stuff uh you know they made him pay the 32 million they saw that the budget had increased whenever a studio hears that their film has just become the most expensive film ever made, that makes executives start sweating. Because, obviously, the more expensive it is to make a film, the lower that profit margin is going to be. Like, it's going to be more difficult for them to turn a profit once it actually goes into the box office. So, there were universal executives that were so worried about how this was going that they flew to New Zealand to personally meet with Peter Jackson to basically be like, what the heck is going on? Like, what are you doing? But Peter Jackson had enough of the film shot to where he was able to show the executives a rough cut of the movie. And whenever he showed them that, they were just overjoyed with how the movie was going to turn out. And they were basically like, you just keep doing what you're doing. We we got a feeling this movie is going to make us some... uh." Some, a decent amount of money, and yeah, you just keep doing what you're doing. And also, another reason why they decided to fly out there and meet him was because uh, seven weeks before the film was going to open, Peter Jackson completely replaced the composer for the film, and an entire new score was going to have to be done for the uh, for the movie. Now, 
there was some debate about what Kong was going to look like in the movie. Obviously, in the version of King Kong that came out in the 70s, that style was done with suitmation, which was just a guy in a costume. And you could say what you will about that. I've always felt that that just did not look right for King Kong. It works for, you know, uh, a lot of the Toho kaiju stuff, some Korean kaiju stuff and everything like that. But suitmation for... The 70s King Kong just didn't really work out all that well. Though I did like the suitmation that was in the 1962 film King Kong vs. Godzilla. I thought Toho did a very good job with that. Even though for some reason that version of Kong is uh, frowned upon by most King Kong fans. I actually love that version of Kong and I will fight any of you that think otherwise. So they decided they did not want to use suitmation and they didn't even want Kong to look like to resemble a human, like standing upright and all that kind of stuff. And so Peter Jackson decided he wanted Kong to just look like a a normal, like silverback gorilla. So whenever Andy Serkis was cast to play Kong, and the reason he was cast to play Kong is because Andy Serkis had also did all of the motion capture for the character of Gollum that was in The Lord of the Rings. So he had already worked with Peter Jackson before, Peter Jackson loved the way he did everything with Gollum, so he brought him in to do King Kong. So, what ends up happening is Andy Serkis got cast, and to prepare on how to play a gorilla, move like a gorilla, and all that kind of stuff, he actually went to the London Zoo and personally worked with the gorillas that were in the zoo so that he could see how they move, how they react to things, and then he even traveled to Rwanda so that he could see how gorillas acted and interacted with different things in the wild. Like, he was, you know, he very much was invested in making himself as realistic and believable as possible as a gorilla. And all of this worked out really, really well because, as, well, we all know, Kong is very, very, very well done in this film, but Andy Serkis would not be done playing apes because he actually plays Caesar, the main ape of the new trilogy of Planet of the Apes films, and he just, he knocked it out of the park playing as Caesar in those films. So, Andy Serkis is, I've got nothing but positive things to say about Andy Serkis. Like, I've been a fan of his, I remember watching behind-the-scenes video of, uh, it was the Two Towers, I believe, whenever that came out. And whenever I saw the dedication and just how just how good he was at playing the part of Gollum and doing the motion capture, I became an instant fan. And so whenever I found out that he was King Kong and saw this and saw how well he did, obviously I was an even bigger fan. And then seeing how he did as Caesar in the Planet of the Apes. And then, you know, he's been in a number of films that's not motion capture. He's become a very capable actor, just a regular actor in his own right at this point. And I'm loving every minute of it because Andy Serkis is just, he's a wonderful person and he's a wonderful actor. And I can't, I cannot talk more positively about him. So, <clears throat> um... 
in order to put, they wanted so much detail in the motion capture on Andy Serkis that he had to go through two hours of motion capture makeup every day while he was filming the scenes for King Kong. And you guys know those little, they're called markers. They're basically those little dots that get put on an actor's face so that they can capture the movements of the face, the facial expressions, and everything like that. He had 135 of those placed on his face every day so that they could capture his eye movements, his facial expressions, and all of that kind of stuff. Like, literally, whenever you see Kong making any type of facial expression in this film, that is the facial expression that Andy Serkis was making. They handled that very, very, very well. So he had also had to spend two months on a motion capture stage just working on just the King Kong films, I mean, just the King Kong scenes by themselves. So he had to go through all of that for King Kong. And keep in mind, he also played the character of Lumpy. He was doing dual roles in this film. So again, I, I, I can't talk more positively about the man. He's, he's a workhorse. And he definitely, he did very, very well in this movie, in both roles. I love the role of Lumpy in this movie. I love the, the way the character is portrayed. And like, I just, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Andy Serkis, y'all. So yeah, very, very, uh, he, he worked his tail off. Now, there were lots of comparisons in this film to the original film. And I'm just going to talk about a little of that. Uh, one of my favorite comparisons that's in the movie is whenever Carl and his assistant are in the taxi and they're driving up and down the road and they and Carl finds out that he has lost his main actress and he's just spinning off actresses' names and all that kind of stuff and then because he said that someone needed to be a size four to fit into the costumes that they had already had and so he looks at his assistant and he goes, "What about Faye? She's a size four. Or something like that. But he mentions Faye. And the assistant said, we can't get Faye. She's doing a film for RKO. And then Carl says, uh, Cooper, huh? I might have known. If you don't know, like you just, if you don't know like behind the scenes stuff, you're not going to catch the significance of that scene. Faye was obviously the first name of Faye Ray, who played, uh... Anne in the original 1933 film, and whenever the assistant says she's doing a film for RKO, RKO is the studio that did the original King Kong, and whenever Carl says, Cooper, huh, I might have known, Marion C. Cooper was the man who conceived King Kong. So, that little scene is just full of little tidbits compared to the original film, and I just, I, I loved it, like there's no tomorrow. Another comparison was whenever they're on the venture and they're shooting a scene and Anne comes out and she's like, I've never been on a ship before. And like, you've never been on a ship with a woman before and all that kind of stuff. Or uh, he said, I've never been on a ship with a, a woman before. And, you know, it's kind of annoying. That was a scene in this film, the 2005 version, like that Carl was shooting for his movie that he's making in the movie. That is actually a scene, like a legit scene, that is plucked from 
1933 version. That's actually a, a conversation between uh, Anne and Jack in the original film. So that was pretty cool. Uh, the stage show, uh, towards the end of the movie, whenever Kong is captured and they're in the opera house and all that kind of stuff, and the performance is going on, that is almost a complete reenactment of in the original 1933 film when they get to the island and they first encounter the natives and they're doing that little uh, like tribal show and all of that kind of stuff, getting ready, uh, you know, getting something ready for Kong and all of that. So that's almost a reenactment. The score itself was the same score that was used in the original film. Another comparison was the final fight the fight between Kong and the final V-Rex in the film, that was almost a move-for-move move copy of Kong going up against the T-Rex in the original 1933 film. Like, obviously, the angles are a little bit different, but as far as the actual movements that Kong and the V-Rex were making, it was almost a move-for-move move remake. So, that was pretty cool. So the film comes out, and it's a success. It ends up winning an Academy Award, I believe, and uh, generated enough in the box office to where it was uh, made a profit and considered a success. And because of all of that, uh, there was talks of doing a sequel to this movie. And believe it or not, there was another individual that was attached to direct the sequel. Peter Jackson was not going to direct it, he was just simply going to produce it. There was another director uh, that they were looking at to direct it. And that director was a man by the name of Adam Wingard. Now, if you've heard, if that name sounds familiar, it's because I have mentioned this guy's name before. He ended up directing this year's, 2021, Godzilla vs. Kong. So he did end up finally directing a, uh, a King Kong movie. But yeah, he was... He was uh, in the runnings to direct a sequel to Peter Jackson's King Kong. And the name of the film was going to be Skull Island. Now, there was deferring opinions about the sequel. One, Peter Jackson wanted the film to take place in World War One. It was going to be a prequel to his version of the movie, probably show like... Just some stuff on uh, on the island and all of that about how Kong, uh, you know, maybe how he became the last of his kind or something like that. Which, fun fact, it is never actually mentioned in the 1932 novelization that Kong is the last of his kind. I know, I've read the book from cover to cover more than once. It is never mentioned in there that he's the last of his kind. So, uh, with that out of the way, let's... Uh, Move on. So Jackson wanted it to be a prequel set during World War One. Adam Wingard wanted it to be a more modern take on King Kong, taking place in modern day. So I don't know, like if they were going to make it to where there was another Kong on the island, and he was going to, like it was going to take place in modern day. Or maybe there, there was a novel that came out around this time, 2005, called Kong Reborn, in which it's not connected to this film at all, but uh, nor is it connected to the 
Cooper Estate at all. It was written because it's considered a direct sequel to the original 1932 novelization because that novel is in the public domain. You know, a sequel was able to be written with nothing, you know, no repercussions whatsoever. But the basis of that novel was uh, deals with a clone of King Kong, and it takes place during modern day. So, I don't know. I don't know what Adam Wingard was wanting to go with, but uh, it ends up, what happens is, copyrights got shifted to Warner Brothers for the film rights for King Kong, making it to where a sequel to a Universal-produced King Kong was very, very, very unlikely. So it ends up getting shelved, and nothing nothing ever came about it. So there were some tie-ins for the film. Uh, one tie-in was a new novelization of this version of the movie. I own it. I have yet to read it. There was another prequel novel that was written. Again, I own it. have yet to read it. But it tells the story about how Carl ends up getting the map to Skull Island because we all know at the very beginning of the movie he just reaches into his pocket and he's like, I have a map, you know, and this is the prequel book is uh supposed to explain how he ends up getting the map. And another tie-in that there was, and I loved this tie-in. I really wish they'd do a remastered version for the PlayStation 4 was Peter Jackson's King Kong the video game. I loved that game. Whenever it first came out for the PlayStation 2, I played it religiously. Um, I loved the whole thing. You know, I, I liked the uh, the levels where you got to play with Kong and fighting dinosaurs and spiders and getting to throw down with the V-Rexes and all that kind of stuff. But I also liked the first-person shooter aspect whenever you would play with Jack and you would have your gun and all that kind of stuff and you know, it, it became a first-person shooter. I loved the game. Um, there's actually an alternate ending to the game. You can play the game to where the final level of the game is you are playing with Kong up on top of the Empire State Building, and you have to, you know, you're basically fighting planes, and whenever you die, you just, you you die. Like, that's that's the end of the game. Like, the, the planes got you. I can't remember what you had to do. Uh, but I know I always tried to unlock the alternate ending because, basically because Kong lives. I can't remember if you had to survive a certain amount of time or something like that, but eventually you would survive long enough or do something to where the level would shift to where you're no longer playing with Kong, you're playing with Jack who is piloting an airplane and he actually flies up and you have to fight off the other airplanes to save Kong. Kong ends up climbing down from the Empire State Building. He gets captured and he gets returned to Skull Island. So I love that ending way, way more because I hate the fact that Kong dies at the end of the story. I just do. I hate it. Like, I love King Kong and I cannot... I've never... As much as I love that movie, and yes, he is my favorite kaiju, I've never liked that he dies at the end. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. People can make fun of me all they want to. You can call me a sissy all that you want to. I don't care. I don't like the fact that Kong dies. So in that game, whenever I was, I found out there's a way for you to keep Kong alive, I 
tried my best to get that ending every single time I played the game. So, all right, guys, that pretty much does it for Peter Jackson's King Kong. Yeah, uh, I love the movie. You know, uh, you know, I completely forgot to talk about. I said earlier that I've got some issues with the movie, and I believe that I talked about this a little bit uh, whenever I first said that I let my fiance watch the film for the first time. Um, Peter Jackson's style can be just a little, a little bit too much at times. Like. There are some things that he does, and he was guilty of this in the Lord of the Rings trilogy as well. I consider the Lord of the Rings trilogy to be my favorite film trilogy of all time, but he does have some over-the-top moments in that as well that I just did not care for. Uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep, whenever Legolas surfs down the stairs while firing his bow and arrow, I just I didn't care for that. Uh, him basically surfing down the... Uh, the the trunk of, uh, oh my god, I can't believe, wow, as big of a Tolkien fan as I am, and I'm having a, I'm having a brain fart on the name of that creature, so don't hold that against me, don't take any of my nerd, uh, my nerd points away, but whenever he surfs down the trunk of the giant elephant, oh my god, that's gonna irritate the fire out of me that I can't think of the name of that thing, but, oh well, uh, it is what it is. But yeah, that was a little over the top. Uh, even in the Hobbit trilogy, with uh, Legolas defying all physics, and whatever the bridge that's made of stone, I believe it was a bridge, it's collapsing and he's running up the steps as they're falling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, King Kong is absolutely guilty of that kind of stuff as well. Let's be honest here. The, the Brontosaurus stampede scene alone should have killed everybody. Like, it's just, it's entirely unbelievable that there's an entire stampede of brontosauruses that's, like, just charging in a very confined, like, runway that they're going down, and none of the main characters are stepped on, they're not bumped into, or anything like that. It's just like, you know, I talk about suspending disbelief quite a bit whatever, watching kaiju films and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know when you watch Toho kaiju films that that's a guy in a costume. But you have to suspend that disbelief to believe that it is really a monster and that miniature set is an actual city. And you can do that. But whenever you see scenes like that in Peter Jackson's King Kong, it makes it hard to suspend that disbelief because you just, you sit there like, that's impossible. Like, there's no way... They would survive. Pretty much everything dealing with Anne with the uh, the V-Rexes, whenever Kong is trying to fight the V-Rexes. Like, how in the world Kong is fighting three V-Rexes and he's literally tossing her from hand to hand or from hand to foot or from foot to hand or something like that and she does not get a scratch on her? No. No, I'm sorry. I don't I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And just, you know, there are just moments like that throughout the film that I just it's too unbelievable. And his his style can just be a little bit over the top at times. And, you know, that's really about the only issues I've got with uh with the movie. Otherwise, I love the movie. I've seen it twice in like the last month 
the extended edition as well as the theatrical edition. Um, I'll never get tired of watching it, just like I never get tired of watching the 1933 version. Uh, I think Peter Jackson did a fantastic job on making the movie. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I do believe, in my personal opinion, that it is the greatest remake of all time. And, yeah, I just, I love the film. I love it like there's no tomorrow. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and go watch it. Please go watch it. Uh, you'll, you'll definitely enjoy it. So, alrighty guys, that pretty much does it for... Peter Jackson's King Kong, uh, on to next week, a week from today at the time of this recording. I will be jumping into the Ultra franchise for the very first time. I will be talking about Ultra Q, the series that was done in 1996. So I'm not going to like do a breakdown episode per episode kind of thing. I'm just going to talk about the original conception, basically the same way I do with uh, the movies and everything, the original conception uh, and all that kind of stuff. It's a legacy to where it pretty much spawned this amazing franchise out there that is the Ultra series with Ultraman and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, if you're an Ultra Ultra series fan, tune in next week for uh, to listen to me talk about Ultra Q. That was the beginning of the Ultra series. And once again, you know, Go check out the YouTube. Uh, I've already, you know, told you what the name of it is. Just Kaiju Carnage. It's got the uh, the uh, same profile picture as the podcast. And go follow me on TikTok for daily Kaiju fun facts. And it is uh, my handle on that is Cal the Kaiju Guy, and it has the Kaiju Carnage logo as the profile picture on that. So, alrighty, guys. Thank you for all the support. You know, you guys are awesome. One last thing before I go. Uh, I'm only about 120 listens away from hitting 3,500 total listens. It is very doable for me to hit this before the year is over. So share the podcast with your friends. If there's a few episodes that you've skipped over, you know, go listen to them and all that kind of stuff. Try and get my that count up and everything. I would love, I want that to be just a little goal that I have for myself to before 2021 is over to get to 3,500 listens. So help me out with that and go take care of that, please. So, alrighty guys, we'll catch y'all next week for Ultra Q. This is Kyle the Kaiju Guy signing out.